Welcome to Frontier War Stories. This is episode 23. Uh, before I go any further, uh, I just want to advise listeners, uh, especially if you're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, um, we will be mentioning uh, people who have been deceased. We'll be talking about uh, some of the horrific things that have happened to Aboriginal people uh, on the frontier. Um, so please, you know, uh, if you... If it gets a bit too difficult for you, please turn off and maybe switch back on a little bit later. Um, this is episode uh, 23 of Frontier War Stories, and my guest is Sky Crickoff. Sky Crickoff. Um, welcome to Frontier War Stories. Before I go any further, I'd like to pay my respects to the country on which this podcast uh, uh, is being recorded and where my guest uh, are um, phoning in from, and also are the listeners. I would also like to pay my respects to Aboriginal people who fought in the frontier, which began as early as 1788 and lasted until the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people uh, continued to fight and resist. I would also like to pay my respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait people across this beautiful continent. Each episode, I speak with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books, oral histories, which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These are the frontier wars, and these are our war stories. In uh, episode 23, as I mentioned, I'm chatting uh, with Sky, who is currently a research fellow at the University of Adelaide, uh, is a historian and anthropologist. Sky is interested in the historical cross-cultural relations and understanding the enduring legacies of colonialism and how societies live with injustices. Uh, thanks, Sky, for uh, coming on the podcast and having a chat with us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Um It's really, yeah, I think it's really great to, to be able to, um, that you're doing this podcast and yeah, I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Now, that's all good. I think um, on the part of that, you know, um, people like yourselves, historians, researchers, are doing the hard yards, you know, to uncover uh, the truths uh, that have been denied for so long or have been stuck in, 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 in libraries or sort of in archives and in catching dust on shelves, which... Sadly, um, our current and, I guess, our legacy of, of educational learning in, in this country um, has really displayed the sort of understanding um, that lots of us um, may have grown up with, not understanding the true history of this country. So, yeah, you know, I'm very fortunate that yourself and many other uh, historians, writers, uh, musicians have created and correlated this information and created such um, um, an avenue to sort of explore the true history of of this country. You know, my job's easy. All I'm doing is just hitting record and asking questions. You know, mm. yourself and the other historians and musicians have been, you know, doing the hard yards in terms of, um, you know, I'm sure um, there's been hard days, you know, uh, uh, looking at sort of some of um, the very confronting sort of... Uh, maybe articles, archival mm. uh, information that uh, 
yourself and many others uh, have come across as well. So no, I appreciate, you know, the, the honesty in this conversation and also the, uh, um, the work that's been put in as well. Cause um, you know, it's facts, mm. you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's things that have happened and have been recorded and, you know, cannot really be disputed um, mm. as mm. well, even though in, you know, uh, the short history um, that this sort of truth telling has has become more aware in, in its short history. You know, there the, the, the were conflicts. I remember chatting with some uh, historians here on the East Coast and, you know, they were a part of the history wars in, in the early 90s, I believe it was, um, yeah. to actually, <clears throat> you know, one, not just tell the truth, but actually have access to sort of, you know, finding out the truth of what happened uh, in yeah. this country as well. So, you know, um, as I said before, thank you and, and the many others as well. Thanks. So, well, we, you know, well, I grew up hearing nothing about how, um, you know, Australia was was occupied and um, the treatment of Aboriginal people. So, once I heard about that, I was, I was in, I grew up in a country town um, out of out of Adelaide, about two hours out of Adelaide, Hallett, Nudgery country in the mid north and um, of South Australia. And yeah, I just was was shocked when I when I first heard about the violence of you know occupation and ever since then I've been really trying to learn more and understand you know how how it was that I could grow up not knowing about this crucial fundamental injustice on which um, you know Australia's foundation is is based so Mm. that's what's sort of driven my research for the past 20 odd years really 25 years I guess yeah, and as you said, you know, the archives are just filled with, in South Australia anyway, they're just filled with um, stories of violence. Um, you don't have to, you don't have to search very far to to find uh, plenty of historical records um, documenting case after case of of violence against Aboriginal people. Yeah. Which is, you know, what we're, we 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 will talk about later. But you know, the project that that I'm working on at the moment is is what we're doing at the moment. Definitely, definitely. You know, and I think, um, well, just on that, you know, you, you mentioned yourself growing up. You know, I think, and, and I don't want to speak for all Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people, but you know, I wasn't aware of half of the stuff that I know in this podcast. Uh, growing up, you know, I was, you know, thankfully enough, I went to an Aboriginal school here in Brisbane, uh, the Murray School, as known, um, and we had an emphasis on identity, culture, um, mm-hmm. and I'm sure, you know, um, through the classrooms and in, in some, you know, there would have been discussions about, you know, history um, yeah. as well. But, you know, as soon as I left there, I went to a real multicultural a high school called Sunnybank State High School. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, you know, nationalities there that I didn't even know when, you know, existed. Um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was that broad. Um, and then, you know, I went, to a, I went to a primary school where I was, you know, like 99% of the population, you know, like people like me, you know, people either looking like me or being, you know, Aboriginal or Torres Islander. 
Um, mm. And then I went to a school where, you know, we may have been not even 2% or 1% of, yeah. of the schooling population, you know. Um, and I, I was actually chatting on the last episode um, uh, with Patty uh, McHughes, who's a musician, a history and an English teacher, I believe. And, you know, we were just sort of chatting about how, um, you know, when you're a minority and when a certain specific issue comes up, that aligns, you know, with sort of who that minority is, they mm. usually become the identity and the sort of scapegoat for asking the questions and, and, and you know, knowing everything about that specific mm. issue. And, you know, I'm sure you, you may have had that growing up, you know, uh, in, in certain instances, um, you know, but definitely, you know, myself and many other, I'm sure, Aboriginal yeah, people. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, though, isn't it? Like everyone just assumes if you're Aboriginal that you know this history or that you've, you know, absorbed know it. But ans- everyone's experience. Yeah, yeah. So that mm. extra expectation or extra extra pressure, that's just another another thing to have to deal with as well, mm-hmm. isn't it? And it's just often yeah. students as well, you know, like teachers sort of get involved in sort of arcsing and, you know, whether it's, you know, most of the times it's coming from, you know, a negative sort of perception. Yeah, you know, and you'd become the highlighted person where you might not want to be the highlighted, you know, and you might not want to stand out in the classroom yeah, in that of, way at all. Mm, yeah. You want to sort of sink to uh, the bottom of your chair. But we'll sort of get into the swing of this. Um, we had a, an amazing chat a couple of days ago sort of about the awesome work that you are doing. And then I was doing a bit more surfing uh, on the net uh, today, this morning, and I found some other interesting stuff Um that uh, you have been doing uh, as well and uncovering and sort of uh, uh, writing about as well. So um, I guess first and foremost, yeah, just tell us a bit about uh, the work that you are uh, currently doing now in terms of uh, tracking or reconnecting uh, and tracing sort of different uh, stories uh, on the frontier in South Australia. Excellent. Okay, so this fits in really well with your podcast series, I think, though. Um, We... I'm currently working on a project called Reconciling with the Frontier and it's based at Adelaide Uni and that it, we've got you know various partner organisations um, but our aim is to track incidents of violence in South Australia between Aboriginal people and settlers in the colonial era. So it's very, it's pre-Federation, so up to the um, 20th century, 19th century, um, but we're really trying to to uncover as many incidents of violence as possible. Like most of your listeners may be familiar with the um, Newcastle Massacre Map, Linda Ryan's The Massacre Map, um, Mm -hmm. which looks at massacres. You know, that's the focus, massacres, which are defined as by the, you know, the researchers on that project, defined as six people being killed or murdered. Um, We are interested in any incidents of conflict, whether people died or didn't die or whether they were injured or whether it was a confrontation over waterhole or stock or um, misuse of women. Um, and we're trying to... So we, it, the project's divided into two stages. The first stage is the archival research, so looking through um, so many documents that are held in the state library and state records of South Australia newspapers, government report, like police reports. We had a protector of Aborigines, which um, uh, Victoria, Port Phillip and um, WA did as well. But 
the protector wrote reports every three months about what was going on and his job was to go out and um, try and, you know, I put it in quotation marks, but protect Aboriginal people. But he did speak with Aboriginal people and record their version of events um, and, you know, diaries and uh, reminiscences and things. So that's stage one of the project, which is um, a massive undertaking. But stage two, which is equally important, is to hear oral oral story, oral histories from Aboriginal um, communities and also settler-descended communities as well. But we absolutely recognise that, you know, the history is recorded and written by the one dominant cultural group, the, you know, the victors, and that we get a particular version of events from, you know, the written records and that we definitely need to balance that up and um, with hearing Aboriginal people's memories and stories and, um, uh, you know, that have been passed down through the generations um, as as far as we can and to give those voices and stories a, a platform on, on the, in the project. And the outcome it will be a, a map um, comparable to the, you know, the massacre map, but with um, the added, added features that you'll be able to click on, you know, like say you're interested in a particular place or a particular name, you'll be able to search for that or you can click on an incident and the records, the written records that we're finding in the archives will be um, copied, digitally copied, so people can look at those records themselves and make up their own minds about what happened. But also they'll be able to hear, according if our interviewees are happy, obviously, with that, but hear the voices of people telling the stories that have been passed down through their, their families um, to really try and it's more about it's about coming to terms with what happened but um, the process of truth telling in the biggest sense I guess not not concerned with specifically this is what the records say but how has it been remembered and what, what does that mean for successive generations to have gone through that and and um, had to live with that I guess mm. so it's a big it's a big project and we're Currently in the stage of, um, we've, we're sort of in the stage of completing, well, working on the archival research, but the next stage is really engaging with uh, Aboriginal community groups and organisations. And also we want to hear the settler versions as well, because often settlers are fourth, fifth, sixth generation, and they have stories in their families and communities that we want to, you know, about violence to Aboriginal people that we want to capture as well. Hmm. That definitely sounds uh, interesting as well uh, and is very, very important work. Um, and my next sort of question would be, um, you sort of mentioned the time frame uh, as well. So other, so the eastern states, most eastern states were sort of recognised or, or were in the process of sort of having various different sizes of colonies. New South Wales already set up. I believe Victoria would have been set up. Um, Tasmania you know, it, or, or Van Diemen's Land, you know, uh, was sort of established. Um, Queensland was sort of, you know, coming into its own, I believe, around the, the mid-1800s, late-1800s as well. So in terms of, and, you know, if anybody's been listening to uh, the podcast previous to this, most of my content uh, on the podcast has been 
around what has happened uh, in sort of the eastern states and, you know, sort of delving into how very uh, violent um, uh, the confrontation was between Aboriginal people and, uh, and European um, settlers in that time. Um, you know, so, so I guess now there's, you know, lots of sort of feedback, uh, lots sort of happening uh, uh, maybe, maybe uh, you know, going back to sort of England as well. You know, how is sort of, you know, does sort of South Australia differ to sort of other states uh, on the east coast in terms of how it was established, or was it quite the same? You know, just yeah, rolling no, on with colonization, uh, just like the steamrolling of of sort of uh, the frontier. Yeah, that's really interesting question, though. Um, so. As you all know, like uh, New South Wales was established in 1788, occupied in 1788, and South Australia, 1836, was when um, the first colonists arrived here. So that's almost half a century later. And in that time, there'd been major changes in England, like in the in the in Britain, in the way they thought about um, the empires. Indigenous people. So the anti-slavery movement had been building up, building up, building up, and it was successful in 1833 in um, banning slavery in the European, um, in the in the British Empire. And so South Australia, at the time it was being sort of formulated, being planned in Britain, um, had this really successful movement, which was was huge in its day. It was um, very well publicised and everyone knew about it and, and it overturned, you know, slavery, which had been existing for, for centuries. Um, and so all these humanitarians who had been working on that then turned their attention to the, the British Empire's colonised people and, re, you know, were really vocal in, in saying that it was unjust and that... that, that um, the Aboriginal people weren't um, benefiting from colonisation at all. And so the South Australian planners uh, were, had to take into effect, into, a, you know, into account that the, um, the wider public didn't want a similar outcome in future colonies. Mm. And the can other I, thing about... Can I just South sort of, sorry, I'll yeah? just jump in. Yeah? Um, and I think it, it, it's interesting as well because... Um, I remember chatting with Libby Connors, who is the author of Warrior, uh, which is a book about uh, Dundalee. He's from uh, sort of southeast uh, pocket here of Queensland, held an yeah. amazing resistance, was executed uh, mm. uh, for you know uh, what he represented and, and what he did. And I remember chatting with Libby, and she mentioned um, in our conversation in in one of the early episodes here that, you know, there was sort of um, conversations with, um, you know, Brisbane officials or, or New South Wales officials back to England. So, and, you know, England was saying, oh, you know, we don't want to build, you know, and we don't want to continue building our empire off the back of bloodshed like we have in the past. Mm, um, so mm. it's interesting that you're sort of mentioning this now. Um, yeah. You know, all these different, you know, uh, people who were, you know, who, who for anti-slavery and and sort yeah. of, you know, looking at maybe I don't, I don't know, condemning sort of, you know, Britain for its uh, bloody track record. Yeah, know, that's uh, right. They were really peoples. interested in, you know, very alert to that, very aware of that, and they had people that had been 
They had witnesses that were writing in, they set up a sort of a commission, like an, um, what's an inquiry, a committee to inquire into the, um, the outcome of colonisation on, you know, the, the Indigenous people. And they had people writing in and, and even, you know, travelling to England to give, give evidence at that. And some of them came from New South Wales. And the governor of um, Van Diemen's Land at the time, he wrote really scathingly about what had happened in Van Diemen's Land and the, you know, the, the decimation to the Aboriginal population there. So they had these sort of first-hand accounts as well. And the, the people in, you know, the government... The, the politicians were um, the humanitarians were successful in the in the parliament, so they were sort of controlling the legislation as well. So South Australia, as I don't know how many of your listeners would know, but you know we're the only colony that had um, a provision in our founding documents, our letters patent, which said that Aboriginal people could not be dispossessed of their land. And that, um, and and not only just that generation, but future generations. And of course, that didn't end up following through. Like that it ended up being ignored. But the fact that it was written into our founding documents was really significant at the time, and it's also significant now because um, Aboriginal groups in in South Australia are aware of this, and they can use that, you know, when it comes to native title and things as well to say, well, you know, look, at, it was not supposed to be like this. So I think we're, we're sort of quite unique in that. And also because I know pe that people bang on, you know, people criticise South Australians for banging on about not having convicts, but because we didn't have, we didn't have convicts and convicts um, were often very brutally treated by their, you know, their masters or the, the people that they, um, that they were assigned to. And there is evidence in South Australia for sure that the the first incidents of conflict in South Australia were from convicts that had come from other other colonies as well that they, they were um, what's the word freed you know ticket of leave men that had come over you know to be employed by various you know um, settlers and they were the ones that often went about armed and were more aggressive initially. So I'm, I'm talking about the really early years and I, I don't want to say that South Australia didn't have violence because it absolutely did. There's no doubt, you know, we're very aware through this project, but the violence um, wasn't, it was, it took, it was, it took longer to develop and there weren't the massacres. We had some massacres, but there weren't the numerous massacres that seemed to have occurred in, in other places. And, and you know, Bo, we were talking the other day about the native police. We didn't have the equivalent of Queensland native police. We had native constables, but they were one-on-one. Um, -on -one. We didn't have a sort of force of native police um, that were you know, coerced, I guess, into commit atrocities on other Aboriginal groups. But one of the things that I always find interesting, and it's something that I want to continue to explore on the podcast as well, is looking at like uh, relationships and and relationality and, and governance and sort of how that worked in terms of Aboriginal people um, having a relationship with whitefellas, uh, mm. with the settlers coming over as well. Because yeah, chatting you know to in previous episodes, it always became a recurring thing. I always ask, you know, what was sort of 
you know, before the violence, what it was like, you know, what, what, you know, mm. were, were Aboriginal people very accommodating to sort of the settlers, you know, they, they granted them land or, you know, mm. sort of brought them into the tribe. But then once, you know, um, their law was broken, you know, then sort of some conflict started happening, you know, when, when, when settlers would brutalise or, you know, mistreat yeah. or, or sort of uh, go into areas where they're not supposed to, then, you know, mob would sort of retaliate and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, now you're breaking our law. When you do that, yeah. you know, your customs are sort of um, being treated as, you know, one of our own would be. Uh, yeah, yeah. As well. So, you know, in the earlier days, you know, you sort of mentioned, um, what was it sort of like uh, with relationships uh, in South Australia? Because I know you wrote an article about... Um, two Aboriginal uh, uh, men who were well-respected uh, in their nation. Um, and I, I I don't know how to say their name, but I will promise I will learn that uh, how to yeah, say yeah. their names uh, yeah, in good yeah. time as well. But, yeah, could we have a chat about their sort of story? Yeah, yeah. So this is – I wrote an article about uh, two warriors called Mullawira Burka and Cadlit Pinner. Mm-hmm. They were from the Adelaide Plain, you know, the Adelaide region, uh, and they were just – remarkable men, but as so many, so many Aboriginal people were, but they were excellent communicators. They were renowned warriors. They were um, renowned dancers, you know, um, and storytellers as well amongst their people. But the colonists uh, recognised them and and they they were the first, among the first Aboriginal people to make contact with the colonists when they arrived in South Australia. And that's one thing I, I do want to say, you know, younger generations are coming up today that I teach at uni or whatever, they sort of get, have this assumption that colonists got off the boat and gunned down Aboriginal people who were waiting on the shores, you know, to, to see them. And it absolutely was not the case like that at all because Aboriginal people, as you would well know, you know, they were very reserved in making contact. They had all these protocols and etiquettes that had to be followed before you know, to make contact with strangers and these strangers that came from over the sea. So in Adelaide, it actually took about three or four weeks of the colonists being on the shore. That's the other thing about South Australia. The colonists didn't spread. Like in, in Port, Port um, Phillip or Victoria, the colonists just spread overland from, you know, New South Wales or they crossed the Bass Strait from Van Diemen's Land before it had officially been settled. But South Australia had this process, uh, idea of concentrated settlement where they weren't, you know, people weren't, they didn't want to have squatters, basically. They didn't want people occupying land that they hadn't purchased or that, you know, before the the um, administration was ready for that. So the colonists in South Australia arrived at Holdfast Bay um, on, at what is now Glenelg, and it took about three or four weeks before the first local Aboriginal people made contact with, with them. Um, and it was warriors, you know, it was men who made the first contact and that would come into the into the um, the settlement, you know, the tent sort of settlement. And Mullawira Burka and Cadlet Pinner were two of these men uh, who must have been excellent communicators, you know, very quickly. There's these incredible accounts of them going on board ships um, and, and learning how to, you know, using a knife and a fork within within minutes, you know, picking that up quickly, repeating language, you know, excellent mimic, being able to repeat words really, really quickly. And, um, and they would, of course, taken back 
what they had learned in these contacts to their people, like to their to their group, and you know explained these new sites and these new things that they'd seen. Um, but in in South Australia, they were recognised pretty early by the the governor as well as being important to establishing good good relations. So they were appointed native constables within within twelve months of the Europeans' arrival. So they're they're in that role. They sort of acted as communicators to make sure that you know, say for example, um, something had been something had been done to Aboriginal people. So in one case, this man, uh, two Aboriginal men, got shot by a settler who was out hunting quail. And when I say shot, they didn't die. You know, they were. It was that sort of shot, which wasn't a bullet as such, but you know, the the um, the shot which you know disintegrated which was caused an injury, but it wasn't lethal at all. So they got shot in the legs and they were furious by this man hunting quail. They were lying in the long grass and he didn't see them apparently. So they were, um, their friends were up in arms that they'd been shot. But through Mullawira Burke and Cadlet Pinna, um, the, the people that had, the man that had shot them was Noah, you know, got, punished, it well, sort of was recognised who he'd done and it was explained that it was an accident and they got appeased with, you know, food and, and the group sort of was satisfied that it was a mistake. So that was a an event that could have escalated into something major that, that um, didn't because of them. And the same with uh, when sheep were, were taken or, um, you know, when Aboriginal people would take some of the stock of the Europeans, Malawira Burka and Catalipina would ensure that it didn't sort of retaliate into a, um, you know, uh, they, they would point out who the people that had taken those sheep and then they would be sort of reprimanded, but it wouldn't be settlers punishing innocent people um, and then sort of escalating from that as well. And there's lots of accounts of, of Mullawira Burka and Cadlet Pinna smoothing things over, I guess, and keeping, keeping the... Um, Keeping communication open and um, yeah, relations really positive mm. for their people. Yeah, yeah. I think that's. Uh, I, I think it's interesting. Um, like you know, their role, I guess. Um, yeah, and, and and you know, not yeah, you know, and and I you know, I know some people sort of look at it maybe like a sort of um, I don't know, you know, like a, a role to sort of appease sort of, you know, white upper class, you know, I, I think it's very, I think Aboriginal people um, are very intelligent, you know, mm. have always, still are, you know, um, and, you know, like we were chatting off air about this, you know, and, and I mm. sort of was saying like, you know, however long sort of a historian or whoever wants to say that Aboriginal people have been here, you know, it's, you know, there's yeah. a, there's a, there's a great, um, you know, signifies to say that, you know, uh, the relationships that Aboriginal people have with each other in the country uh, yeah. were, were next level in terms of, yep. you know, the, 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 there were never no sort of uh, form of mining or like a form of taking over anybody else's land or, or even slavery, mm. you know, like the mm. relationships mm. that, you know... Very egalitarian, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. like the, 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 the relationships that, you know, were formed, were built, you know, um, how it was conducted, you know. Yeah. Um, and very then sophisticated, very, very sophisticated way, wasn't 
going into yeah, sort of conflict. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's. I'm that just in constantly, you know, yeah. Is, Sorry is, to interrupt, though, but yeah, I'm. Yeah, I was just going to say I'm constantly, um, what's the word, humbled by the the Aboriginal people's willingness to accommodate um, the Europeans, but like, on their terms, and um, it's Europeans who transgress always transgress, and you know if and and we've got to remember, you know, so for Aboriginal people at the time that the Europeans arrived, the future was not known, you know, they it the outcome was was not. Um, could could not be seen, and they they've sort of, I guess they were optimistic that things could didn't have to unfold the way that we know that they did unfold. Mm. But or, they were, and how could they ever imagine being dispossessed of their place? Like how could they ever think that something like that could happen? You know, in those initial years, you would they couldn't even imagine such a thing, having been there for generation after generation, their place, or, or to, even like. To, Sorry, go. No, it's just to conceptualise that someone can come in and take over your land, it would just be unfathomable. So, you know, that wouldn't have been in their consciousness when they were in those initial sort of relations with people. Mm. Or even the fact that, you know, prior to sort of any settlement being set up, you know, um, there were forms, you know, there was a big, you know, there was a massive pandemic all over, you know, that affected, you know, Aboriginal people, you know, demolished sort of, um, mm. you know, um, the numbers of Aboriginal people at the time, yeah. you know, and yeah. um, by the time sort of settlers get here, whether or not, you know, sort of mob are sort of putting two and two together saying, you know, they brought it or they left it or, or sort of they introduced it, you know, mm. uh, smallpox to the country, whether or not mob, you know, was like, hey, it was these fellas here, you know, the, mm. when, you know, um, and, you know, I, and I'm not saying this was always the case, you know, uh, because there are many instances where, you know, um, Europeans are just sort of met with uh, uh, um, a, a violence uh, mm. uh, as well due to sort of knowing... Uh, what has happened or what may come mm. along as well. So, yeah, yeah, mm. like, I, I just find it, yeah, yeah, amazing and that, and it's that's really interesting. It hasn't been explored that much as well. That's really interesting, though, because like in South Australia, um, people have done the research on it. Rec- suspect that before the colonists arrived, Aboriginal people in South Australia had already been decimated by smallpox coming down the River Murray from um, the Sydney, you know, from New South Wales. So already their population had been, well, some people say up to 50%. That was that was a good, uh, you know, had, had of people had died. That was a good 30 years before the colonists arrived in South Australia. But still they were recovering from that massive, massive loss. And the other thing in South Australia was, of course, the sealers and the whalers that set up at Kangaroo Island from, you know, the early, early 1800s. And they made raids on the mainland to um, abduct Aboriginal women. So so in some areas, like the Port Lincoln area, for example, or the Nurunjeri area, like around the, um, the mouth of the Murray River, they were had been exposed to this um, immoral, I guess, you know, Europeans coming and taking their women. So they were... Those places they were initially hostile to the Europeans when they arrived, but that wasn't the case in the Adelaide area, which makes you suspect that 
people hadn't been taken from that specific place. Like whether they knew knew about people that had been taken from further away, they they may have. But also, you know, on how intelligent Aboriginal they were so in, you know they they very quickly learned to to work out the differences between the sealers and the whalers and the colonists. You know, like just in their general appearances, in their boats, in their demeanour, in their manner and things as well. So, yeah, I think. Um, it's just fascinating, and and different groups, of course, had different ways of relating to to the Europeans as well, and very much depended on, um, well, it depended a bit on individuals, but also depended on their territory, like their country as well, um, their you know, different customs between groups and things as well. So I think that's really interesting to take in, into account, and the Europeans, like which. In Adelaide, it was families that arrived, you know, so children and women, and and they were confined to a specific area. And um, in other, in the more remoter places, like Port Lincoln, or you know, like uh, as as settlement, you know, expanded, pushed outwards, it was often single men, you know, that went out um, without family, without children, without um, wives, and conflict was, you know was a lot more likely in that case as well. Mm. Yeah, it's um yeah, it's definitely something that I want to continue to look more into uh that sort of topic uh, and also this area, you know, that you're doing as well. Um and and like the role that you know, Aboriginal people have continued to play sort of uh in the frontier as well. Um mm. and and in sort of different you know, capacities as well. Mm. Um, you know, sort of just getting back to um, your work as well, you know, it's it's sort of looking at, <clears throat> as you mentioned, sort of speaking with uh, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people sort of about this sort of conflict. What stages are you up to uh, in this study? Yeah, so with the, with the Reconciling with the Frontier project, we're still, we're at the archival stage, which we're, Nearing completion, um, we've got that there's so many records to go through and we're just at the stage of beginning to consult with Aboriginal community organisations and, you know, settler um, descended, you know, um, non-Aboriginal community groups as well, really to seek people's, well, to notify, let them know about the project for a start and to see if people have got stories that ultimately, you know, that they would like to share, that they would like to be included on on our map, um, mm. that they think have not been told or that have not been given the, you know, the recognition that they they deserve. So in the case, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say in the case that you know there are some people. Um, yeah, I'd like to think you know I have people everywhere listening, but you know, in the case that you know there are people listening from uh, South Australia, um, how would they get in contact with you? Yeah, well, we'll be very shortly, like literally in the next couple of days, we're sending out um, information to the PBCs of, of each different organisation and then a week or two later we're going to be sending it out broadly to a large list of community, organ- different Aboriginal heritage and types of organisations that we've been given from our Aboriginal reference group. We've got a really strong an active Aboriginal reference group as attached to this project, um, which is providing us with excellent feedback, you know, really good um, good um, 
feedback about, you know, how best to engage the wider, much broader Aboriginal community. But basically, um, people can, there's a website which hasn't yet gone live, but there'll be a contact page coming up in the next, you know, hopefully the next three weeks or four weeks that people can just contact, you know, leave a message on that contact page and um, we'll get back to them and work out, you know, work out a time to catch up and, and meet with them and, and hear what they what they have got to say about mm. it. And, so so, yeah. so is, is there any, like, websites or sort of uh, pages that they can sort of, you know, keep an eye out for now and then, you know, when sort of the links and some other stuff uh, come out, they can Yeah, sort of well, there's not yet, but there should be. Like, within the next three or four weeks, there should be uh, a website designer sort of working, working on that as, as we speak at the moment but hasn't yet gone live. But yeah, it should should be soon. Mm. But by the time um, you know, I can give you once it has, so I can give you the you know the link or you know the Definitely. address or whatever. You give me yep. the link and I'll update sort of the this episode and uh, put yep. a link down uh, in the description. Um, yeah, you know uh, that'd be great. It'd pretty be it'll be under the title "Reconciling with the Frontier." But you know if. Hopefully, you know, people could Google that and that would pop up. But, yeah, I'll definitely once it's all live and happening, give you that link. Boy, that would be good. That would be awesome. great because we really want to hear, we really want to hear um, from Aboriginal people, as many Aboriginal people as we can, you know, what, what they know about the frontier, what's been. And if they don't know, that's also relevant too because it means that maybe their group was so displaced or so, um, you know, pushed off land or, because often, you know, places act as containers of memory, don't they? You know, places are reminders of what happened in um, in in the past. And so, for groups that have not been able to stay on their country, um, that's also interesting. You know, that they they don't have stories. It doesn't mean that there wasn't violence or that there wasn't um, things happening. But it's just that they haven't been able to be passed down through the generations. And I think that you know that many many Aboriginal people. Um, who were colonised quickly and rapidly have have that experience. Mm. Um, with the work you're doing, um, and you know, we mentioned um, the work that Lyndall Ryan and and the University of Newcastle, I believe it is, are, are doing uh, with the massacre map, uh, yeah, archiving, but making sort of a keeping like a digital footprint so people, you know, of all ages and you know, people can actually get in and, and have a look and sort of see um, how, you know, many sort of people are involved in conflict and uh, sort of, you know, giving a really good, you know, uh, account of sort of, of what happened as well. Like, I think it's amazing sort of like using, um, you know, sort of digital media as a platform to sort of host uh, this information. It just sort of takes it to another level in terms of knowing about, um, history and how people can sort of explore and delve into it and then it sort of opens up you know hopefully the avenue for them to sort of you know read the books or yeah. you know, do their own research as well um, absolutely yeah mm. can, I, can I butt in now yeah, I just yeah, want to say totally. we're really really excited about <laughs> sorry I've got a frog in my throat um we're, our partner organizations are <clears throat> state library and state records and they're digitising all these, any records we find that are relevant will be put up on people, there'll be links so people can look at those documents themselves, which is really, really important, I think. Um, 
and and we want this to be a really interactive website and we feel like we are doing the foundation work but we want it to have a life of its own so we want each community to to use it as they want you know as a research tool and then go on and do further research and you know just so many so many incidents that we're finding haven't been remembered through the generations i think it's just going to be really powerful for aboriginal and settler descendants to see all these all these um, places where all these different interact these interactions were happening and to we're also finding names you know aboriginal names of people that have long been forgotten in in groups that were long you know colonized really early so names like you know Mullawira Burka, they they are known because they were really well known people but in other areas you know there's the names of aboriginal warriors and women and children and the names of of places that aboriginal names of places that have long been wiped out you know or forgotten mm. so we can we can it's really powerful way for to be able to reclaim those those names and those people as well when you see when you see your documents with these things with these names written on it it's really you can use people can aboriginal groups can use this for their own own purposes when it comes to you know putting up information boards or want getting their history more widely known as well mm, definitely I, I like that you said that as well because you know, I'm finding out so much just sort of doing this podcast. And one thing I always say is uh, history, uh, one thing that it does is it informs us on the relationships that we have today. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, everything everything you say, is, I, I agree with and I find really interesting. And, and just the fact that, yeah, the archives are filled with, with these, well, in South Australia anyway, that's what I'm most familiar with, but filled with names of, of Aboriginal people that, um, you know, every place, every place had a, um, you know, every family owned every place of South Well, a family owned every place, say, of countryside. And often the colonists um, would record the names of those people from that place. And different, different groups had different ways of trying to accommodate the Europeans and um, different levels of success and, and things of, of being able to survive on their own country as well. So it's really interesting just to, and of course there were some positive relations too, which we don't hear much about, but I think they're also important to recognise because they can be a way for the future as well. Like if you think it wasn't, you know, uh, and the past, the past, is so because we haven't come to terms I think as a nation with the past it's still very much in the present and you know just very we need to um, how do you move on when you, when a large proportion the majority of the po population hasn't even recognized the injustice of occupation you know of taking over another people's place another people's country I think that's something that you know we need to need to continue to work at as a as a nation in order to be able to move on and um, genuinely you know confile with Aboriginal people I think as, as a non-Aboriginal person that, that's what I think mm, definitely definitely and you know sort of yeah you know definitely look at sort of history and, and sort of battle with what you know other people have learned um, and and look at how you know what they've learned has inform them or you know so-called inform them on sort of 
you know, Aboriginal people or, or, or mm. other people at that as well. Um, and, you know, that sort of creates, you know, uh, a negative sort of perception of of, of people. Um, yeah. So let's challenge yeah. that, you know, let's sort of look at how we can sort of, you know, break down that understanding and sort of, as you mentioned, sort of move forward for the better as well. Um, mm. Sky, like I've, I've uh, um, you know, asked all that I wanted to ask. If there's anything else that you want to add, uh, please do so as well before we wrap up. No, I just want to thank you again very much for, you know, inviting me to speak with you today, Bo. And, um, yeah, no, and, and just I do want to urge if there are any South Australian people that listen listening to this project and uh, listening to this podcast and think that they would like to um, hear more about the project or whatever, um, yeah, do click on that link, which we'll get we'll get to Bo as, as soon as it's made available. And we'd love, love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your stories and work with you as in if and how you'd like them to be um, represented on our, on our map. Deadly. Uh, thanks for that. This has been episode 23 of Frontier War Stories. I was Sky, who is a research fellow at the University of Adelaide, historian, uh, anthropologist, interested in historical cross-cultural relations, understanding uh, and enduring legacy of colonialism and how societies live with injustices. Just really quickly, uh, for any listeners, uh, you know you can um, become a patron through our Podbean, if you just Google um, Frontier War Stories, uh, become a member through that platform, then you can sort of, you know, become a, a monthly uh, patron to donate to the podcast. Or you can go to my Instagram page, which is just bonos89, and you can find the link to the PayPal if you'd like to donate to the podcast. Um, thank you, uh, Sky, for coming on uh, once again. You know, look forward to sort of how the project unfolds and you know talking to you more in the future great thanks bo thank you